All aboard the MBIT Podcast with Seamus Madan. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the MBIT Podcast. I'm your host, Seamus Madan, and today we have a very special guest, Gad Alon. He is the director of the M&T program at the University of Pennsylvania and a professor of operations and information and decisions at UPenn. He received his PhD in management science from Columbia Business School in the Big Apple of New York City. At the M&T program, he teaches students how they can combine technology with business to create scalable solutions to problems. So first off, thank you, Professor Alone, for taking the time to join the podcast. It's a pleasure to have you on the show today. It's great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Absolutely. So let's first start off with your journey. So you were a self-taught developer. You previously worked for many Israeli startups. Would you mind walking the audience through your background, starting in computer science, to more recently with your ventures in academia at Wharton with the Jerome Fisher program? Yeah, so, so maybe let's start from the beginning. Originally from Israel, was born there. From a very young age, started the, a programming and, and, and learning how to program. I, I tell people that was before there was an internet. So I would actually have things, I would get books on how to program and then would copy things from the book and then start playing with that. When a very relatively young age already had, you know, just like, you know, people program apps and the like, I, I did the same. We didn't call it apps at the time, of course. But then when I was 16 already, did a fairly big large-scale pro- project with Intel, like Tektronix at the time. And so that brought me fairly deep into a writing code and and doing C and 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 the Windows and Motif and and, and so like fairly deep into development, uh, but then when I got to the age of eighteen and, and you know Israelis usually do military service and then undergrad I actually got approval to do the opposite, but I thought to myself I don't want to be in front of a computer for the rest of my life, and actually decided to not pursue a degree in computer science, but actually do it in, in, in what some people call here at Penn, system engineering or industrial engineering, operation research, essentially. So I, I was curious about the mathematical side behind engineering, uh, stochastic processes, optimization, less so about just continuing to write code, but continue to work in writing code. So I worked for several Israeli startups, primarily in the area of large-scale databases, and then really, really enjoyed that. But again, go to the point where after 16 years being in school, decided I want to do something very, very different and, and actually went and then was in, in a combat unit in, in actually equivalent of an elite unit, special forces in the Israeli military. It was just a great experience to, to, to be in a situation where in many ways what I did was my, my unit was what we call a, a ranger unit, so like a reconnaissance patrol. And so the cognitive side is much more about navigation and orienteering, but, but you get to lead like between 50 to 100 people, vastly different experience than, than the startup world or, or, or writing code. Finished that and then decided that I prefer being on the cognitive side more than a, on, on the physical side. And then that's where I came to do my PhD. So I'll stop here for a second. But, but you know, it, it's otherwise it's started to be long. But the point here was that, you know, if, if I look where, where I am now, I'm in academia and, and, and one can say maybe there is a straight line between being a very early stage coder to doing that. But in fact, it's a very meandering, circuitous route where you're continuously trying to do things. And for me, at least, it was primarily realizing that up to that point was that after everything said and done, I really like the ability to go deep and, and, and to be very rigorous in what I do. And but I like to be also in areas where I'm somewhat can be applied. And then that's what brought me to do a PhD at Columbia. I did my PhD there and then 11 years at the Kellogg School. And then for the last seven years at, at Wharton as the director of the management technology program. But I said, well, being in academia is, is, is you know, that, that's of like 
my, my title, if you will, and that's my the, the place where I, I work. Being in academia has the advantage of the ability to continuously choose what what to do. So you know, I, I do research, and, I, and I'm happy to talk about my research primarily on the gig economy and 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 on supply chain. I, I get the ability to also teach, and I teach some of the smartest students out there, both undergraduate and and, and graduate students. But also, it allows me to work with many firms. And so when I was at Kellogg, I worked with bigger firms, Pepsi and and GM. Uh, and John Deere. I uh, worked with the FBI for a long while. Then when I joined Wharton, I started working with earlier stage firms. So I, I've been working primarily with firms that are scaling from the pre-seed stage to, you know, to different series and, and, and many times uh, post-IPO. And, and so like the, the ability to, on one side, to research at the same time, help firms as they scale, teaching people that are going to be the, the scalers of the future, if you will, is just a privilege of, of of being in academia. So that's kind of where, where I'm now, trying to do all of these things and juggle all of them at the same time. Definitely. And I'm sure one of the things you've noticed is having a powerful, strong network can be super important to career success. What were some people that, or people or professors that were your role models you looked up to the most throughout developing your career that you took with you throughout the rest of your career? Yes, yeah, so, so I, I was very fortunate to to have, at least from the academic point of view, have amazing mentors. And so, one of my personal, like you know, for almost everybody in academia, there usually will be a person that brought them, sort of like convinced them to go into academia. And, and for me, the, the person, his name is Avishai Mendelbaum. He was a faculty at Stanford for ten years, Stanford GSB, and then came back to Israel to the Technion. And I was very fortunate to be his TA. And and you can see someone that it was. One of the earliest people to was a very, very strong applied statistician, applied probabilist, but it was one of the earliest people to work on, on call center data and understand how call center behave and how people behave in call centers, and, and which was an interesting application of that. But to me, at least, it was not so much the question that he was trying to answer, more about how he thought about every aspect of, of, of academic life. So for example, when we were TAs for him preparing an exam, we would go in iteration after iteration, making sure that every word is crafted well and everything is done well. And, and he would be very deliberate on, on everything. He would say, when I leave the classroom, only 10% of the people need to understand what I said. When they go to your review session, 30% more need to understand. When they go to the exam, 30, 30 more percent need to understand. And he was very, very clear on what's the role of also the different groups he teaches. So for example, he will say, when I teach executive MBA, I, I'm trying to make an impact immediately because they can use it immediately. When I teach MBAs, it's actually basically from one year to five years. When I teach undergrads, 20 years lifespan because they're, they're not going to impact now, but hopefully it's going to be a much more lasting impression. Uh, when I do research, it's, it's like 75 years because if you expect your research to be applied in day, in day one, that's very unrealistic. You should look into the impact of the future and, and the trying to build scaffolds for someone else to make the impact based on that. And so just being very realistic on the ability to juggle different things, but also scope of influence was, was very, very impactful for me as, as I thought about the fact that I do like to do things that have impact, but also I, I like to go really, really deep, sometimes without the constraint of feeling that everything needs to be immediately applied. So that's one. Then I had an amazing Avi Federgren at, at the Columbia Business School was my main PhD advisor. My main taste in research of what is good research, one that is that makes innovation both on the theoretical side, but also on, on the results, that the results themselves are interesting. 
how to write a paper. I, I was deeply influenced by him. There, there are other people along the way. A, a, one of my earliest investors, Vishai, was, was also a, a great guy in terms of thinking overall on what drives you to start a firm. You will usually say that there are really three reasons to start a firm. It will be you, you want to make money, you want to build a firm, or you want to solve a problem. And, and really understanding like how do you build also a, a team of co-founders that have potentially different, in that sense, one of the, talk about networks, and then one of the people that influenced me a lot is actually, in fact, a student of mine, my first co-founder, a co-founder of mine. He was, he was a co-founder and was a student. He was one of my first students at Kellogg. And this is a person that I've been in touch throughout. I'm, I'm an LP in his fund. And we, we speak quite often, but he's someone that has, has made an, an immense influence on, on, on how do you maintain a good network. I'm, I will definitely never be as, as a good as a good networker as, as he is. And I, and I, and don't mean, I mean that as someone that really truly care about building and, and really care for his network. I will never be there, but, but seeing someone that it's an for him, it's an art is, is definitely something I was deeply influenced by. Definitely. And now moving on to the present tense at the M&T program, you've seen many interesting students build incredible companies. And so we've had a lot of VCs on the podcast. And one of the patterns they notice, especially in their early stages, is there tends to be a hyper focus on product. What are some of the things that entrepreneurs can do to transition themselves from the products phase to the scaling phase as a company grows? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I would say there the are multiple things, but I would say the, the so I have, I have this framework that I'm using that that is called the scale framework. It's a scale litmus test. Let me give the acronym. What's behind that? I asked the firms basically the following five questions. One is, are you scalable? Which is, is there urgency to scale? Then we talk about the question of the C's, the constraints. Are you aligned? Do you have prior market fit? Is, do you have the right leadership structure? And are you efficient? Do you know how to make money? So the, the scale is more like a mnemonic device. These are, these are questions that I think are essential to exactly make this transition from prior market fit, which is the first step. You need to have, first of all, you need to have a good solution. Then you need to make sure that you validate it, that it indeed provides value. That's what we call prior market fit value hypothesis. Now we move to the growth hypothesis. And growth hypothesis basically asks you to test multiple things. Do you know how to make money in a repeatable and predictable way? You don't have to be profitable now, but I want to see that there is a path toward becoming profitable. I want to understand, um, do you know how to use scale to create a deeper moat? So tell me how to make sure that with every additional customer, you do a better job to the next customer either by lowering the cost or by providing more value. And most firms, by the way, fail to do that. Most firms, as they scale, their cost increases. And in fact, they provide less value because now they have less attention to detail. They start developing features that no one wants and they start chasing opportunities, which they should have done early. But at this point, they really should narrow it down and focus on what they can actually do well to start making money and, and start building a scalable solution. And then I think to me, at least one of the most important transitions as you scale, you start thinking about what is the next constraint? What is the next risk? Initially, at least, you're so focusing on prior market fit and really building a product that you, that you really should not think about risk. The biggest risk you face and the most likely outcome is that you will fail. And that's okay. You don't need to model any risk beyond that. But there is a place where you need to start thinking more consciously on distribution, on how do I make sure I bring the right people? Initially, you brought whoever was willing to join you. 
there will be a point where you need to start thinking about how do I make sure that the right people for the mission, the, the chief marketing officer that brought you to $10 million in revenue will not bring you to $100 million of revenue. The, the VP engineering that actually was there writing code initially is probably not the person to run and build a scalable system. How do I make sure that I have all of these things in the, in, in the right place to position myself for the next step? And by the way, this question comes back again and again and again, because the PR brought you to $100 million in revenue will not bring you to $1 billion. It's just a different group of people. And some of them may stay, most likely most of them, sometimes including you, are not the right people to do that. Are you aware of that? Are you willing to ask these questions? So that this framework that I have is really meant to highlight what are the main pitfalls rather than give an answer. In, in, in my course, we double, we, we, you know, double click on each one and go deeper into these. But these are sort of like transitioning from thinking about the product to thinking about the organization around you and the process around you and the leadership around you are really the main challenges firms face. Definitely. And you made a really good point on profitability. And I think it's something that Twitter is going through right now. But we can delve into that a little bit. So for example, when discussing scaling, revenue per employee can be an interesting metric to analyze. And according to a report by The Information, YouTube has around 7,500 employees putting their revenue per employee at $4 million. And then in 2019, The Information also reported that Craigslist has reported over $1 billion plus in revenue with just 50 employees putting their revenue per employee at around $20 million. Now, on the other hand, Twitter in 2021 reported just $677,000 of revenue per employee, and they're not profitable, which kind of does help shine light on why Elon Musk is attempting to significantly reduce staff. But with all of this, what are some of the ways organizations can increase their revenue per employee to turn a profit and become more scalable? Yes. So I'm not sure that the revenue per employee is necessarily the, the holy grail for, I know that some people use it as a heuristic. I'm not sure that that's the holy grail of, of, a, of metrics. I, I'm, 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 yep. I'm usually a little bit afraid of, of metrics that are, are too simple of that type. Again, it's not a bad metric, but, but I, I'll, I'll be hesitant a little bit with that. Twitter is actually an interesting example, right? I mean, if, if I'll talk about Twitter for a second, Twitter is, is a firm that had product market fit too quickly. I know it may sound odd, but, but the point here is that Twitter is an example for product that if I describe to you and say, should we launch a broadcasting, blogging, microblogging system that allows you to only write 140 characters and you can follow whoever you want and you can pretend whoever you want and there's really no way to slice the data in any possible way but, you'll, but the stream, would you, will you be interested in something like that? You will say, why would I? That sounds like a terrible product. But the moment they started, and I was a fairly early user, the first thing I do in the morning till this day, by now many, many years afterwards, is Twitter. I look at Twitter and see what happened. And, and for many of the users on Twitter, they're very addicted to Twitter. But Twitter got there very quickly. And it really never had to iterate on its product market fit and at the same time its business model. So its business model is still very, I would say, not well-developed. Advertising on Facebook is easy because most people are on Facebook. So it's very easy to understand how advertising on Facebook will lead you to actually higher exposure, discovery of product and, and so on. Twitter is much more complex. And because of speed of that, it actually really never managed to, the, the entire sales process to sell ads on, on, on Twitter has been always a fairly ham-handed and, and, and not very productive. So 
Twitter always needs to invest much more in, in, a, in a massive sales group to try to sell products or sell solutions, while Facebook were relying much more on a self-serve model. So basically what I'm saying, like to some extent, I'm not sure what's the main, I don't think the main issue for Twitter is, is necessarily its cost base. I think the main issue for Twitter is that inability up to this point to still find a good business model to actually make money of that. You can see that by now, I think as far as I understand, most of the money Twitter makes is not on Twitter. It's on people that go on Twitter, but go on other places, which actually will make it almost a little bit like Google in many ways. So you, you they follow you in other places and how they, they make money. But that's clearly not a very, very, it's still a hard way. Primarily is now Apple is making it harder to make money by enforcing stricter privacy rules. So I would say Twitter suffers definitely from, from a, a very high cost base, but I'm not sure this is really their main issue. But that highlights really one of the main struggles for startups, which is you start usually and you start with a product and you try to validate that. And there come a point where you need to start saying, we need to find a way to acquire customers for cheaper than what it costs us to serve them. If we are in a sort of like in a life, if in a life cycle business, and most businesses are, it costs you quite a bit to acquire customers. And, and you, want, you want to make sure that you're not building a leaky bucket. So if you look at firms like Lemonade, and you see that they're investing, for example, the last number that I saw was 104% of their revenues go into marketing. So not talking about cost, talking about just pure marketing. Marketing is 104% of your, your revenue. This, after a while, becomes very, very addictive. It becomes very addictive because the only way to maintain and sustain your value is to continue to grow. Because you think with, if you think about like the value of a firm, and talk about financially now, it usually has two components. It has how fast you grow and how much margin you have. In, in, I'll give an example. In, in, in the SaaS business, we'll, there is this rule people use called the 40% rule. Have you heard about this rule? The last yes, I have recently, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so right. So this rule basically says the sum of the two has to be above forty percent. It may it seems odd a little bit to add these two numbers, but but that's a rule that many people use for SaaS businesses and say, well, you can if you are are growing like crazy, then we're we're willing to give you a credit a little bit on not having strong margins. But if you're not growing, then we want to see that how you're pushing your margins. And and what I see many firms do, and I know Lemonade is not a SaaS business, and, and neither is Twitter. But what we see in many places, we see firms saying, we'll grow as fast as we can and we'll have no checks on whatever unit economics we're building. And as the growth slows down, and it is going to slow down for most firms over the next year or two, primarily as we're heading into a recession, then you realize that this entire mechanism that you build was built on really one premise, which is growth for the sake of growth rather than growth for the sake of building a deeper moat. And, and that is really the key question. Is the tailwind that you have is the pressure to grow, a real pressure coming from the fact that you can translate growth into better economics, or is it just because everybody's growing and you need to feel and you feel the pressure to grow? I agree. And I think speaking of Twitter's business model, if we just touch on that real quickly before we wrap that one up, do you think their $8 monthly subscription is going to be sustainable in the long term? Or what do you think would be a possible alternative to that in terms of a business model? So as a business model, I actually personally like that. I, I like that in a sense that I like it in a sense of, to me at least, there are two equilibria. Um, 
I think, but like if I use my game theory head for a second, one equilibrium is one where no one pays. And if no one pays, then everything becomes very chaotic. There's really no source of truth anymore. Everybody can say whatever, whatever they want. I can pretend to be Elon Musk. You can pretend to be Elon Musk. I can pretend to be you. There's really no check whatsoever on who is what. And advertisers will also flee that place. No one wants to advertise in a place that's going to be associated with extremes. If I don't, I mean, that equilibrium will basically mean Twitter will become a basically parlor. Sustain maybe is a really, really small group of people, a little bit like the MySpace and the Friendster of the past. See another equilibrium where there is actually an identity. So like people are willing to pay for that. The people are willing to pay for that are people that actually have something more interesting to say. There will be enough people that will not pay. That's okay. It's enough. It's, it's enough if 5% of the people pay, 10% of the people pay. But that's enough to create enough credibility to allow for advertisers to come. So to some extent, I know that Elon Musk is putting it is you have to choose. Do you want advertisers or do you want people to make money through, through some of these subscriptions? I think it's actually both. I think it's the fact that people are willing to pay and allow you to create identity and create credibility and make overall statements much more checked and reasonable and overall information flow to be much more credible that will also allow for advertisers to come. So to me, at least it's almost like a zero one situation here. And I prefer strongly a situation where we go, where we have both advertisers pay somewhat, eh? but, but then definitely people are willing to pay to get their, to make sure their identity is really them. We pay much more than that for, for a price that provides me much, much less value than that. Yeah, I think that does make a lot of sense. And before we, one quick thing I did want to touch on earlier, you mentioned about revenue per employee. I do agree with your point on the data. I think it's important not to overgeneralize certain types of data and apply it to a specific business and say they're efficient. So I do agree with that. But besides revenue per employee, what are some of the other ways organizations can calculate efficiency of their business and the potential areas they might need to improve on? So so there is really, that. that is a... a an interesting question. And, and I don't think there is one specific one. One of the ideas I want to think about, so like in, in my class, we, we use something called value driver tree. We build a value driver tree to identify the metrics that that you should measure. So it can be DAO, can be stops per hour, can be drops per hour, can be many, many DAO over mouth. There are many, 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 but, but actually quite nuanced. The, the real good metrics are nuanced. And, and so here I, I refer sometimes people to this notion of the hedgehog principle. The hedgehog principle that's taken from a book called Good to Great by Jim Collins. And, and, and the book, and you know, the book, maybe not my favorite book out there. Happy to talk about that in another time. But it's the hedgehog concept basically says the following thing that the firm that managed to go from being good to being great, one of the things that they did while doing that was also an important change of what of a of a key metric, of a profit per something. So Abbott, for example, indeed measures dollar profit per a employee. But one of the examples that he gives there is, for example, Walgreens changing from dollar per square foot to a dollar per a visit. Or Gillette from a dollar per division to a dollar per customer. And so I, I know these are very high level and one of the main issues in the book, of course, it doesn't tell you how to find these. But the key idea here is the following. If you are innovating on your business model and you still measure what the competition measures, you're probably not truly, truly capturing the value that you're delivering. 
And so this is not from the statement, from the book, that's my statement. My statement is that I, I want, like firms continuously and founders continuously look for generic metrics because they like to benchmark. And VCs like to ask you to measure what other people measure. And you need to do that. Of course, you need to have daily active users or, or, or some aspect of that if you are in, in a social network and you need to have some aspect of engagement. And, and But I, I want to see what are the unique metrics that you measure that are truly capturing your business model uh, in a way that allow you to highlight in what way you're different. Now, not every firm on business model. Some firms just have an interesting product that is different than before and just that's what they do. That's great. But but I, I, I try to stay away from just generic metrics. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. And over at the M&T program, you probably do see quite a significant number of students come out and decide to build businesses. So what do you think being involved with this next generation of entrepreneurs and first-time founders, what mistake do you see most often in first-time student entrepreneurs that are trying to scale their business that you might not see as often as someone who maybe has built a business before and is an experienced entrepreneur? I think it's it's hard to say uh, what is. I, I would say definitely one thing, which is underappreciating some of the longevity, unfortunately, of some of the early decisions. So one of the founders that I have in my program tells the story of how even just a mistake that he made initially of giving titles to people in his firm, how all the way to 40 people in the firm, they were still dragging that mistake and not willing to cut it very early. Or how sometimes giving a lot of credit to your VCs when they try to put some person on your team that you don't think is the right person, but they come with great credentials from your VCs, how conceding these too early. So I would say, like, I don't think there is any typical mistakes. I would say the most typical mistake is, is really mistake that everybody makes, which is the fact that this is, think about like reading a book, one of the, so when you're a first time founder, you're writing the book for the first time. You don't know what's the end of, how the, the end looks like. When you're a second time founder or a third time founder, you, you understand a little bit, at least some of these trade-offs and, and and you've you've at least read one book all the way to the end um, and then so I, I would say the mistakes actually not all that different because when I bring sometimes in my class some of the more seasoned employees uh, seasoned founders they will say they will make the point that many times some of these mistakes they will make them again and again later on in subsequent firms primarily because it's not you have many reps right I mean like when you think about like Amazon Amazon can do a b testing. Uber can do A-B testing. They can launch a product. They can only launch it to 10%. They can learn from that. When you make decision on, on a scale of 30, 40 people, many of the decisions you make at that point, you can hedge your bets. You can say, well, I'm going to put that person here and, and I'm going to have more confidence in, in, in maybe removing them if things don't work. Or I'm going to have much more confidence in articulating what are the guardrails in terms of culture. But usually you get into the habit in, in, of of you have pressure to accept customers that you don't want. You get pressure to put employees at the wrong place because they, that seems to be the best employee you can get at this point. And, and so these things really do not change. It's more, in fact, the more I see is that it, the more pressure, it's not so much about how seasoned the founder, but the question is how much pressure there is to grow. Because the more over the last, you know, we discussed profitability a little bit earlier. And we are recording that in, in 2022, the end of 2022, where the word profitability is, is back in season. Uh, when, I when I mentioned profitability a year ago, 
people were asking, what are you talking about? No one cares about profitability. And at that time, there is much more pressure to grow. If there is more pressure to grow, you're going to make more mistakes on hiring. And, and there is no bigger mistake a firm can make than putting the wrong people at the wrong place. This is a mistake that once you make that, it's a cascading event because they're going to bring other people that you don't trust, don't trust, not, I don't mean in, in, in a nefarious way, but you don't trust to make the right decisions on hiring and culture, on, on, on skills, and, and that escalates very, very quickly. So the, the main issue, it, it's really less about how seasoned they are, because I see the same thing now with founders that for the last five years, they've only been in time of prosperity. They've not seen a single recession, get into a recession now, and that's a whole new ballpark. You mentioned a good point, especially on profitability, because I work at Bliss Scaling Ventures, and it's a, definitely something that's starting to shift in the VC space, at least recently. So I worked with Chris Yeh and the team over there. And the way we analyze deals is we would take the revenue and see, take a look at the revenue acceleration in regards to the number of employees at the growth, headcount growth, and a couple other things. But now we had a meeting a few months ago, and he's like, okay, now we have to take a look at profitability. It's a metric that is now being focused on more in the venture capital world. And I think it's this wave. It's not like it's the first time venture capital has ever focused on profitability. This has happened more than once. Now that we're starting to get out of the hyper growth curve and now starting to get back into focus on profitability and actually seeing, can you build a sustainable business? I think you build a great point on that. And before we wrap it up here, what do you think are some of your takeaways for the next generation of founders in the audience? I would say, first of all, know that some of the early decisions that you make, some decisions you make very early have no staying power. You can iterate on them continuously. Product, you can iterate as fast as you can. You should iterate as fast as you can. Your co-founder and whether to have a co-founder and who is the core team, I see some of people come and ask me, should I go to a meetup and find a founder? Where do you think I can find a co-founder? Finding a co-founder is like finding a partner for life. The same way that the same way that you don't like, I'm saying something, I'm not sure that people will agree here on, on but I don't <laughs> say that the same way that you're not, you're going to Tinder, not necessarily to find your significant other for life. You don't want to go to a, a Tinder for founders to find your co-founder. You want someone that you can trust. You want someone that you, you align in terms of values. You want someone that you align in terms of culture. So spend time finding the right people around you and then continue. Right? I mean, so don't compromise at all on that. And if you think that the right way is to go alone, go alone. But don't make sure that you, you don't compromise on that. The second thing that I'll say is try to really, like, but here I'm, I'm sort of like, you know, probably preaching to the choir. I see sometimes founders, and that's definitely not something that I see at MNT. So I'll say in MNT, one of the main things that we, when we look for students that come here, one of the most important aspects I look for is bias toward action, which is I look for people that when presented multiple options, they will always prefer to do rather than to criticize. And when I say do rather than analyze, criticize is just one form of analysis. And I'll say the same. People say, well, do you think that's a good idea? Go and do something. When I say do can be go and meet people, go and speak with people, go and build something simple, go and engage in a conversation, go and if you not always go and build an app, an app is sometimes a good thing to do. Sometimes you want to spend the time before that speaking with people. But rather than just sit at home and read, and you know, reading is really important. And, and I and I have a reading list that I, I I love recommending to people. 
but at the same time, bias yourself towards action is, is an absolutely must for every co-founder, for every founder. Yeah, I think that is a super important lesson because we've seen teams that have had the wrong types of co-founder and they just completely fell apart, even though they had a great business. So I think that is probably a great piece of advice. All right, everyone, that wraps it up for today's episode. If you enjoyed the podcast, make sure to leave a five-star review down below and share it with a friend who you might think would be interested in the show. And thank you very much, Professor Alon, for taking the time to join the show. It was a pleasure. Same here. Really enjoyed the conversation.